$20 billion is nothing to sneeze at, even for a department as big as Veterans Affairs. But that's how much extra VA got in the CARES Act, aimed at pandemic relief and passed in March of last year. But a year later, VA had only obligated about half the money. For what else it found, the Director of Health Care Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Sharon Silas. Sharon, good to have you back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you decided, or I guess you were told, GAO was told by Congress to take a look at what happened to that $19.6 billion, to be precise. It wasn't quite $20 billion. And a year later, only half obligated. Tell us more about uh, what you looked at and what you found. Sure. So the CARES Act had a provision for GAO to report on federal government's ongoing monitoring and oversight of efforts related to the COVID-19 pandemic. So for this particular review, we look to try to understand how VA was obligating and expending these supplemental funds and then also assessing um, how VA was overseeing the COVID-19 funding. And so it seems like they got more money than they needed at this point. Well, for fiscal year 2020, VA's annual budget exceeded $200 billion, and most of that went towards supporting health care administered through the Veterans Health Administration, and then also benefits administered by the Veterans Benefits Administration. So the CARES Act and the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, both enacted in March 2020, provided an additional $19.6 billion in supplemental funding. So this is over and above the annual appropriation, and this funding was specifically to be used to prevent, prepare for, and respond to COVID-19 and to support COVID-19 testing during the pandemic. The majority of these funds went to the Veterans Health Administration, followed by the VA's Office of Information Technology. All right. And so at this point then, this was as of March when you actually took the look, they had obligated about $9 billion and had spent about $8 billion. And so what does this say about whether they need the other half of that money? Sure. And you're correct. Through the end of March of 2021, VA had just spent over half of these funds, about $9.9 billion out of the $19.6 billion. And one of the things that we observed in looking at how VA was obligating and spending these funds is there was kind of a period of where they were ramping up to be able to monitor and track these funds. So a few of the issues that they had to deal with was one, just setting up some new codes for their financial management system that were specifically targeted to track those supplemental funds. Also, initially, as VA was trying to ramp up and respond to COVID-19, they initially coded some of the COVID-19 related expenses as obligations of annual appropriations. And so they had to later go back and recode those to make sure that they were actually tracking towards the supplemental funding. There was also some delays with VA's Office of Information Technology, which received the uh, kind of the second largest portion of funding from the supplemental funds. The Office of Information Technology experienced delays in their hiring process for additional personnel that also contributed to the slow growth in the obligations and expenditures of funds. When you look kind of over the year-long period, you can see that as they ramped up and got some of these processes in place, they were able to kind of more quickly obligate We're speaking with Sharon Silas, the Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. But given the pace of what is happening with the pandemic, with fewer and fewer new cases popping up, less and less need, frankly, for testing, do they need the other nine or 10 billion that have not been obligated yet? 
Sure. So some of the, the funding that the Veterans Health Administration used over the period that we looked at went primarily towards community care, salaries and expenses, supplies and materials, and support for homeless veterans. When we looked at what the Veterans Health Administration is planning to use for the rest of the funds, they plan to use that funding for vaccine distribution, additional PPE, and then continuing to do COVID-19 testing. The Office of Information Technology, again, they received the second largest portion of the funds. During the period that we looked at, they primarily obligated funds for the operation maintenance activities related to COVID-19, such as expanding telehealth for veterans and then also telework for VA employees. Looking at their span plans for the rest of the fiscal year, they're looking at using those funds for additional equipment, building network capacity, and obtaining software licenses. According to the span plan, and our conversations with VA officials, they do plan to expend the remaining funds by the end of fiscal year 2021. And of that $19.6 billion altogether, how much of that was for the Office of Information Technology? About 11% of those fundings went to the Office of Information Technology. 89% went to the Veterans Health Administration. So it was the bulk of the funding went to those two components of VA. Yeah, so around $2 billion, in other words. Yes, And are you satisfied that the remaining spending that they want to do is, in fact, related to the pandemic, especially in the OIT? Yes. You know, as I mentioned before, initially when VA was responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of kind of trying to predict where they were going to need these funds. And then as the pandemic went on, they were able to kind of make adjustments and better plan for how they were going to be using those funds. And so looking at the spending plans now for the rest of the fiscal year, it looks as though the funding would be appropriately used. And the coding issues and so forth, making sure that the right funds were accounted for in the right way, that's kind of an OIT issue also, right? Because they're the ones that had to build the new codes and procedures into the accounting system, correct? Correct. Yeah. And once they got the code set up and also using the processes that they already had in place, they also initiated or put out new guidance to help track these funds. So all of those different elements were put in place, you know, as the pandemic was going on and now they're in place. And so they're able to appropriately track the funds as needed. Sure. Is it a concern in general of GAO? And maybe this is this is outside of the scope of the report, but I mean, it's kind of a gestalt for GAO. Is it not to make sure that when agencies get a piece of largesse like this, an extra amount of money, that they don't find ways to spend it in order to spend it for the sake of spending it, but that they really use what they need for the purpose at hand for which it was appropriated? And I should probably never say this out loud, but turn some back. (laughs) So, I mean, at least for this review, we did not evaluate the extent that the VA's components adhere to the processes that they developed to manage the supplemental funding. I mean, we reviewed VA's financial management processes in the context of federal standards for internal control related to monitoring and communication. But during the course of our review, we looked at a non-generalized sample of VISNs, the networks, and the financial coding for 10 national contracts. And we did not, during this course of the review, observe any non-adherence to their processes. But we do, in a report, make a note that others in the past have identified issues with VA's financial management practices. So any particular recommendations from this look-see? No, we did not have any recommendations for um, this review. All right. Sharon Silas is Director of Healthcare Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Thanks. 
We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define 
how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. 
I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told it, the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.